You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome to uh, Reshape Week 8-ish, Week 8. And uh, yeah, so tonight we're going to be looking at how Jesus reshapes how we see what we do. And uh, I have uh, Mike, our, Mike Clausen, a, a longtime teacher here, who is now also at Regent. And so he's an expert on this, and he's been working forever, so he's an expert on that. And so let me pray and we'll dive right in. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for this opportunity to gather in person and on, on, online to reflect on how your reality reshapes how we spend most of our time in our lives. And so we commit uh, tonight to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, David. Yeah, so we're going to be looking at work and vocation tonight. And a few of the questions we're going to be uh, wrestling with are, uh, what does the Bible have to say about the work we do? Um, is some work uh, more eternally valuable than other work? Does Christianity have, to have anything to say about how I navigate uh, transitions in my work life? So amongst other questions, we're going to look at uh, those ones. Before we start, though, I think it's important that uh, we do some definitions. Actually, also, before we start, my apologies for the people who have a physical copy of the notes. Um, they're actually going to be a little bit different from what I'm going to be going through. You can ignore the page that has the picture of the guy from Parks and Rec who's on fire. Uh, yeah, that, that page you can just completely, completely rip out. But anyway, um, important definitions. Because when we define work, uh, when we look at the Bible, and the Bible defines work, it's, it's different from how our society defines work. And uh, the biblical definition of work uh, is the meaningful co-creative acts that we take uh, with God and with the church, and these are regardless of how society views the value of these acts. And it's regardless of whether there's any kind of compensation for these acts. So that would be kind of our working, pardon the pun, uh, definition of work. Vocation. So I'm going to use vocation and calling interchangeably. But when the Bible talks about vocation, when it talks about calling, it's talking about the totality of the life that God calls us into. And... Uh, We'll get into this in a little bit, um, but we're going to split it into three parallel areas. Communion with God, our community uh, with the church, and uh, the co-creative work that we do with God and with the church. So the third one is work. And then finally, we're going to be, one of the definitions we need to uh, lay out is toil. Uh, so when I say toil, it's labor that uh, in, involves pain and fatigue, uh, labor that oppresses the body, mind, and spirit, and or spirit. And this labor may be necessary, 
I have to do taxes this week. But it's work that is, or sorry, it's tasks that are not regenerative. So before we get started, I think it's good for us to look at a vocational ideal, uh, an example that the Bible gives of what a vocational life looks like. And there's a few examples throughout the Bible. But one of the ones that I really like is found in Proverbs 31, 10 to 31. Now, guys, I get the fact that this uh, passage is um, directed towards the wife of noble character. But when we look at the characteristics um, that she exhibits, these are universal. These are, these are things that all of us should be exhibiting. So I'm going to read it. A wife of noble character who can find. She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grabs, grabs the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arm to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She's clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies merchants with sashes. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Lord Jesus, these are your words. I just ask that you would speak to us tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. So Gordon Smith, uh, who wrote Courage and Calling, and, and some of the stuff that I uh, gathered together tonight is from his book. Uh, he calls this passage uh, almost doxological, is the word that he uses. And what he means by that is that really this woman is not the, uh, the focus of this passage. That ultimately, everything that she does, this entire example, is uh, pointed towards the glory of God. And we see this uh, then as an ideal. And we see that when we go back to our uh, three-part definition of vocation, we see how she meets each one of those parts of the definition. Uh, we see her in communion with God when it talks about her fear of the Lord. We see her in community with his people. It talks about her interactions with, with servants, with merchants, uh, with her children, with her husband. And we see her in her co-creative work with both God and his people in pretty much the rest of the passage. 
So much of that passage is talking about her work, and it's using that to give glory to God. She glorifies God through what she does. So, we have this ideal view of the vocational life on one hand. We go all the way to the other side. Now we're going to look at some secular views of work. And what we quickly find is that uh, the secular views have completely disintegrated um, work from being a part of this holistic vocational life. So this is not an exhaustive list, but it's just some things that uh, I've noticed, some things that came up in the readings that I did. But one view of, uh, one secular view of work is that all work is toil, that leisure time is king. And to quote the, uh, the great poets of uh, Loverboy, uh, working for the weekend. Interesting that almost every Friday, so I work uh, at Simon Fraser University, I do IT there, and almost every Friday, somebody says, thank goodness it's Friday. You know, thank goodness the week is over and real life can begin. And I need two days at least to get over the hangovers and so I can be at least somewhat prepared for Monday. The number of people that say TGIF on Friday, it's crazy. And as you approach five o'clock, it just increases. So that's one view. Another view is, uh, of work is uh, getting on the dole. Roz, my wife Rosalind, uh, tells a story. Uh, she used to teach uh, ESL in Thailand. And a guy that she taught with was from the UK. And his life goal was once he's done uh, seeing Thailand and once he had finished his teaching contract, he wanted to go back to the UK. He's going to spend the rest of his life living on the dole, living off of welfare. The idea that society should allow me uh, to do nothing and if not thrive, should at least be allowed to survive. I should be able to have what I need, maybe a little extra spending money. Secular view of work, Freedom 55. I'm uh, 46 in a couple of weeks, and I'm one of the younger people in my office. And so you can imagine that retirement is a common topic of discussion amongst my coworkers and I. One uh, gentleman who retired a few years ago, when he first started at SFU back in the late 80s, early 90s, he put a timer up on his wall. And the timer had uh, the year, the month, the day, the hour, the minute, the second, and the millisecond till he reached his ideal retirement time. And he kept that running until he retired. <laughs> it was hilarious. But the idea that uh, work is basically uh, just a purgatorial waiting area that where we just check off time until we get to the paradise that is retirement. Life starts at retirement. Another secular view of work is the idea of uh, the supremacy of intellectual jobs over manual jobs. The societal view that education is less uh, a means of self-improvement and more of a way to end up uh, with a well-paying intellectual job. So, you know, a banker, a doctor, a lawyer. 
Uh, I took my undergrad in, uh, at least I ended up in my undergrad in uh, humanities and philosophy. And I remember discussing with one of my philosophy professors the idea that in our society there's this uh, inverse relationship between the uh, respect and the prestige of work um, and it's inversely related to the amount of physical effort that that job takes with of course the exception of uh, professional athletes but uh, and it's not necessarily the the pay that the uh, the job gets but it certainly is the respect uh, that the job holds and he used the example of himself, that uh, he was a university professor, and so there was a great deal of respect for that. His brother was a, a garbage man. There wasn't a lot of respect for that, but ironically, his brother made way more money than he did. But when we talk about prestige, when we talk about the, uh, the honor that we hold positions in, generally, the less physical activity there is, the, uh, the more prestigious it is. There's the idea that your ability to work, your ability to be useful, uh, is equated to your worth in society. My brother uh, used to uh, support a severely autistic man. He uh, lived in the, their basement, and uh, my brother and sister-in-law, that was basically their full-time job, was, was supporting him. And my brother uh, was sitting with, his, uh, uh, with two of his kids, and uh, he just had a half an ear listening, and, and they were listening to Thomas the Tank Engine. And uh, over the weeks that uh, they would be listening to Thomas, my brother kept on getting more and more unsettled by some of the lessons that uh, Thomas was teaching his kids. Um, in, in amongst all of the adventures that Thomas uh, um, uh, had, there was a number of ones where there was an engine that didn't want to be useful or wasn't able to be useful. And uh, these engines, one of them was walled up in a tunnel, uh, one of them had his wheels ripped off and he was turned into a stationary power generator, and one was thrown on a uh, scrap heap to rust. And uh, the narrator after a number of these, uh, kind of turned the camera to the children and said, I think this engine got what he deserved, don't you? So my, brother's, my brother was horrified because in his basement, there was somebody who uh, was a part of the family, they, they, they loved him, and yet by society's definition, by Thomas's definition, he wasn't useful. There's the idea of work as identity. <clears throat> Most common last name as of uh, 2013, I believe, in Canada is Smith. And the etymology of Smith, of course, is at some point back uh, in the past, um, their progenitor was some kind of Smith, a blacksmith, a goldsmith, tinsmith. But the idea was, this is what you do, this is what your children will do, your grandchildren down the line, for generations, you will be Smiths. This is your identity. And we fast forward to 2014, and there's a Gallup poll that was taken in the States. And so we can generally take the numbers probably to be somewhat similar for Canada. But 55% of the workers who were polled uh, moderately or strongly identified with a statement, I gain my identity from my work. And finally, 
can look, and this is kind of a more postmodern idea, but the idea that work is, a, is an occupation in that it is what we occupy our time doing. Postmodern thought strips out any idea of transcendentness. And so God, if he exists, doesn't really care what we do with our lives. And when we end up with this idea of, I, apply, I impute any uh, kind of value into my work that I want, just like you do, the only way that we're able to interact with each other is through power. And so in the context of the work environment, it's competitiveness. Work is a zero-sum game. If I get a promotion, it means that somebody else doesn't. Similarly, if they get it, I don't. There aren't enough promotions for everyone to go around. Only one person gets it, and that means I need to do whatever I can, step on whoever I need to in order to get that promotion. And we get a high view of paid work. The higher the pay, the better. And we get a low view of unpaid work. Volunteer work, um, stay-at-home parenting, all of these have a very low view. So, I've been talking for a bit. We're going to do a little bit of discussion now, maybe two, three, four minutes. Um, for those of you online, there's uh, a couple questions. What views of work, um, with or without the idea of vocation, have you encountered? And which of the previous secular views do you find yourself straying toward? If you have any additional secular views that you've thought of, please put them in the chat for everyone who is here. Just maybe make groups of two, three, four and, and discuss this. We'll, uh, we'll give it a couple minutes and uh, yeah, we'll get together and, and uh, see what has been discussed. Oh, yes, and then I'm going to pause this. Recording is back in progress. Some, uh, some thoughts that, uh, that we had? Anyone want to share? Speak up a little bit? Okay. I will, I will speak louder. <laughs> I have no problem speaking louder. My apologies. Um, any thoughts? Right.
Yeah. So just for those online, we're talking about monetizing our lives, that people online oftentimes will turn themselves into a product in order to make money. And, uh, and the damage that that uh, can do, especially to families that put themselves online to, to monetize themselves. Thank you. Any other, any other thoughts? How do you put a monetary value on raising yeah. children? Yeah. yeah. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so talking about how society values um, being able to put a monetary number on, on work. And so things like raising children becomes um, problematic and generally looked down on. Thank you, everyone. So we started with looking at this ideal uh, view of a vocation, this, this fully integrated view of our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and the work that we do. And uh, we looked at the other end of the spectrum, which is the disintegrated views that society has uh, of work. So how did we get from here to here? And I love history. So we're going to go through a quick jaunt through history. And we'll start with Adam and Eve. And uh, I said before that uh, the proverb that I read, it was one of a number of uh, ideal vocational examples. And in chapter one and chapter two, we have another ideal vocational example. When we look at Adam and Eve, uh, Adam initially and then Eve and how they were created, what they were created to do, and, uh, and the work that they were uh, given to do. And we see in chapter one that God uh, uh, basically uh, made man and made earth and made man to have dominion over the earth. So there's this idea of, of ruling over it, but also this idea of stewardship. And we look at uh, chapter two and we look at verse 15 and God puts man in the garden to work it. Which is interesting because when I think about uh, working a garden, I think about weeding, but weeds wouldn't have been a thing at that point. So clearly there was still work that needed to be done in Eden, work that God created uh, for Adam and Eve to do. And so we have this ideal uh, view of vocation, and then we see sin break it. We see in, uh, and we see in chapter 3 uh, God's curse uh, on Adam, which is that his work is going to become toil. And uh, I mentioned before, it doesn't mean that it's not necessary. He needs to toil. He needs to work the ground in order that food comes forth. Otherwise, he and evil starve. It's necessary, but it's oppressive. And so we see this break uh, of work from, from vocation. <clears throat> We fast forward a number of thousands of years and uh, we get to the Greeks and the Romans. 
and uh, we look at a guy called Plato that David went through a few uh, few weeks ago. And Plato uh, basically uh, idealized uh, the spiritual and demonized the material. Spiritual is good, material is bad, and uh, the closer you get to the spiritual in whatever you're doing, the better. And so he wrote a little treatise called The Republic. And in The Republic, he basically gives his ideal view of what uh, a government should look like. And what it is is that the vast majority of the, uh, of the people, the unwashed masses, they're the ones that do the physical work. They're, they're at the bottom. You have the military, they're an important part, but you don't really trust them to do anything um, really crucial. The people that do the real work, the only real free people in existence, they're the philosopher kings. They're the ones that rule at the top. And they have the responsibility to think. Think about important things like philosophy, and math, and politics. You know, you would never catch a philosopher king going and uh, doing gardening, going and working in a field. You wouldn't even catch him um, being an artisan. That's all low work. That's working with matter. That's bad. Instead, the more spiritual, the more mental their thought is, the better it is. And so you saw this reflected in Roman society. You saw the, uh, the wealthy and the powerful. What did they do? Well, not a whole lot other than politics, philosophy, and, and more mental work. The, uh, the poor, they're the ones that did all the physical work. And the lower you were on uh, the list, the uh, worse your work was. At the very bottom was like working the fields and working the mines was terrible. You see this Greek idea um, straying into, <clears throat> sorry, straying into Jewish thought. In the intertestament, oh man, I'm choking here. In the intertestamental period, uh, we see this uh, apocryphal book called Ecclesiasticus. And the author, he writes that um, the scribe is to be exalted over the tradesperson. And that uh, only when one is free from toil um, can one become wise. And so you get this idea in Jewish thought that the more spiritual your work is, um, the more important you are, the closer you are to God. And we see God turning this upside down uh, during the nativity. Because who do the angels come to? The shepherds. Shepherds were close to the bottom of the uh, social totem pole. Sheep were smelly, they were messy, you had to work outside in the elements. It was dangerous. Nobody wanted to be a shepherd. Nobody respected the shepherds. And yet they were the ones to whom God, oh, thank you. They were the ones to whom God brought uh, the word that he had become, his son had become incarnate. We continue uh, to the early church, and we do see that the early church does reintegrate the idea of, of work and vocation. We see it when Paul talks about uh, the importance of people working with their hands uh, so that they may have something to share with those in need that he talks about in Ephesians 4. We see when he talks about um, the, the, the ground being level at the foot of the cross that it doesn't matter if you're a wealthy man, member of the senatorial class or a slave. Um, before Jesus, we are all equal. It doesn't matter what you do. 
And so we do see this idea of vocation throughout the church. However, we also see the church being affected by the society around it. Because by the time we get to Constantine, we see that um, this, uh, the, these ideas of Plato, this idea of spiritual being good and uh, physical being bad, um, have uh, affected how the church views uh, the clergy and the laity. And that there's a high view of the clergy and there's a low view of the laity. There's a high view of the spiritual work that the priests and the bishops do and there's a low view of the work that everybody else does. Augustine, who had probably the highest view of common work, um, even he uh, was of the view that the, the contemplative life, the life where uh, you spent as much of your time uh, contemplating, praying, and, and being with God, and is the least amount of time physically working, that was still a superior way of living than, uh, than actually physically working with your hands. But the more common view was one uh, that I put in a little box on the side, and it was Eusebius. Eusebius was a historian and a theologian that lived around the time of Constantine. And uh, Alistair McGrath talks about how, uh, for him, the perfect Christian was one who uh, devoted his life to serving God, but that was who was untainted by physical labor. Those who chose to work for a living were second-rate Christians. This idea continues into the Middle Ages, and we get this idealizing of monastic life over regular life that uh, the monks were the holy people in the world and that everybody else was, was carnal, was material, they were bad. The Reformation fa fails to fix this. Um, Martin Luther does talk about uh, the idea that his milkmaid might actually be a holier person than any monk in any uh, monastery in Christendom. He said, I have no problem uh, with this idea. I have no problem with the idea that my milkmaid might be, as she goes about her day doing her work, more holy than a person who's done a pilgrimage or a crusader. But those ideas didn't really stick because even in Protestantism, there's still this split that we see throughout the next several hundred years of elevating the clergy over the laity. When we go back to kind of secular views, we, we see in the Enlightenment uh, the continued trend of elevating spiritual and mental over physical. When you uh, consider the uh, archetypical Renaissance man, Leonardo, Di I was going to say DiCaprio, uh, <laughs> Da Vinci, <sighs> Leonardo Da Vinci, not DiCaprio, he's an okay actor, um, when we consider uh, Leonardo da Vinci and all of the massive amount of skills he had, he was an architect, he was a mathematician, a philosopher, he was a writer, he was a painter. But all of these actions were all mental actions. They were all kind of up in this nebulous spiritual realm. You never heard uh, da Vinci uh, extol the, the virtues of working in the fields or, uh, or working with his hands, working in a garden, for instance. Spiritual was good, physical was bad. But it's interesting because also in the Enlightenment, you get this idea of an integrated, the idea that work in and of itself is good and that it doesn't really matter what your work is, but 
it's now divorced from a relationship with God. And you see this starting with Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin took the idea of the Protestant work ethic, which um, was one of, I mean, most of the people that moved to the 13 colonies were Protestants. And so everybody understood what this Protestant work ethic was, but for most of them, the ones who were passionate Christians, it was worked into their idea of vocation. Franklin divorces this, and he holds up work, regardless of what kind of work it is, as its own end. That work is a good in and of itself. It's something we should strive towards. And so we see the beginnings of this uh, making work into an idol. And yet it was wildly successful because it's one of the underpinning views um, in America. I think it's one of the things that made America uh, such a successful and wealthy nation. So just because it's uh, making work into an idol doesn't mean it's not effective. We get to post-modernity and uh, kind of on the secular view still, uh, we see that postmodernity strips all ideas of work being transcendent out and reduces uh, whatever we do to a personal preference. And so we see that the workaholic is just as justified in his choices as the sluggard who uh, um, refuses to work and lives life on the dole. The only meaning work has is the meaning that one decides that it has. And when we look at what a common view of work is in the church, we still see this. We still see uh, idealizing of the clergy and uh, implicitly then denigrating the work of the laity. And uh, um, Gord Smith had this as a quote, and he, he prefaces it uh, because he says, you know what, I'm sure what A.B. Simpson was getting going at was good. He wanted to encourage people uh, to go to the mission field, that people were lazy and they were scared, and, and he wanted to strongly encourage um, all of, as many who's, who would consider it to go to the mission field. But what he actually says is, your only excuse for staying home and not going to the mission field is if by staying home you can do more to further the cause of missions than by going. So you know, ideally you want to be a foreign missionary. If you can't do that, be a pastor. If you can't do that, be somebody who makes enough money to support the pastor and the missionary. And if you can't do that, you're really following what God wants you to do with your life. There's this implicit question in there that uh, that denigrates uh, a lot of the work that the laity does. And so we end up with uh, the three prevalent views of work in society today. So the set three prevalent secular views are uh, work as an idol, work as an obstacle to be avoided in the pursuit of leisure, or work as, as I said before, a purgatorial waiting room as we wait for retirement. And for Christians, one of the predominant views is the clergy are the ones that should be doing the spiritual work. When we, when we look at the commands that Jesus gives to us, that's primarily for the clergy to do. For the laity, we go to church on Sunday, but that has no effect for what we do on Monday. I said before, we're going to take a deeper look into vocation.
And uh, to start with, the English phrase uh, vocation comes from the Latin uh, word vocatio, which basically means calling, which is why I'm using it interchangeably. And we see throughout uh, the Old Testament uh, call language being used all the time. And the Hebrew word is kara. Sure, I'm massacring that. Um, and it's used to denote the people of God who are summoned to participate uh, in his purpose for the world. It's a call to salvation, it's a call to holiness, and it's a call to service. And in the New Testament, we have two Greek words that uh, occupy the same space, kleo uh, and klesis. Once again, I'm sure I'm massacring it. Um, but the call language is similar. We're called to salvation through discipleship to Christ. We're called uh, to the invitation uh, for holy corporate and individual life. And we're called to serve. So we get this idea of vocation. And Paul Stevens, uh, R. Paul Stevens, he's a uh, emeritus professor at Regent. And uh, in some of the books that he's done on this topic, he divides uh, vocation up into the three parallel streams that we uh, briefly talked about before. Communion with God, community with people, and co-creative work with God and his church. So communion with God. Mark 12, 29 to 30, Jesus answered, the most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Some translations say the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And we need to continually be reminded that the call to communion with God is the bedrock upon which everything else is built. And it's the call that God gives everyone to belong to him, to glorify him, and to follow him. We see in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's sin breaking this uh, perfect communion that uh, they experienced in the garden. And hence, going forward, damaging all of our uh, relationships, all of our communion with God, um, and damaging our understanding of vocation as a whole. And you see throughout human history, people trying to uh, plaster over that crack with, with everything that they can find except for going back to God. To use a Christianese term, there's a Jesus-shaped hole in our heart. I prefer the uh, quote from Augustine. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. With Jesus' sacrifice and with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are then renewed in our communion with God. And hence, through this renewed communion, we start to see our uh, real understanding, this integrated understanding of vocational living. Uh, we see it start to be restored. The second part of uh, this, this holistic view of vocational living is uh, us in community with people, specifically with God's people. And uh, the second part of the greatest commandment is uh, Mark 12, 31. The second most command, important commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we go all the way back to Genesis to see God initiating this idea of community. 
the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so we see God calling Adam and Eve to live in community and that in that community, they have communion with him and they have work that he has created for them to do. As the Old Testament story goes on and we see them break this idea of vocation, we see the restoration start through God's calling of the nation of Israel. And that one of the roles that the Israelites had was to fulfill Adam's uh, vocation in the context of them being a chosen nation. And that this call to Israel was both to the many and to the few. To the many, it was to the entire nation. Uh, They were to all belong to God as a chosen people and thus enjoy God. They were to live as a covenant community in in holiness, in justice, and in mercy. And they were to serve God's purposes uh, in the world as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And we read in Isaiah 42, 6, as a light to the Gentiles. That was Israel's role as a nation. That was their vocation. There was also the call to the few, and here we see when the Holy Spirit came upon specific people for specific tasks. And we see in the stories of Samson and Moses and Othniel and David, among others, we see them called for specific tasks, and they're anointed by the Holy Spirit to do those tasks. When we come to the New Covenant, when we come to the New Testament, the call of God is both individual and at the same time corporate, two halves of the same coin. We're each called individually uh, to belong to God through adoption, to be sanctified in our lives, uh, to increase in our Christ-likeness. We're called as well each to do the work that God has called us to do. And we're able to do this because the Holy Spirit indwells us and comes upon us and gives us the ability to join God in his work. The other half of the coin then is that we are also called to live corporately. We are a part of God's people. First uh, Peter 2.9, we are a, a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation. We are the called people of God, we are chosen. We're in a spiritual sense bound together as Christ's body. And our corporate role is to live in community, uh, to bear witness to our true identity in Christ, and to corporately do God's work in the world until Christ returns. So we have our communion with God, we have our community with each other, And now we have the work, the co-creative work that God calls us to do. John 5, 17, uh, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Uh, There's a couple translations that translate it. My father was always working. He is still working. He will continue to work. Therefore, I too am working. God is not an idle God. He is a God who works. And in his work, he gives us work to do. 
And we see this throughout the story in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see, starting with the creation of Genesis, that Adam and Eve were called to work with God. This was part of their job, was to do the work that God had set them to do in the garden. We see throughout the Exodus, through the establishment, the exile, and the reestablishment of Israel, we see God working, and he continually invites his people to come work with him. His desire is for Israel to work with him as a nation of priests and as the light to the Gentiles. When we transition to the New Testament, uh, we see that through the Holy Spirit, God continues his work of redeeming the nations. Acts 1 through 9, he uh, continues with, he starts with Israel. And uh, Acts 10 and onward, he continues uh, and includes the Gentiles. Thank God. From there we see the work that he prepares for us, which is joining with him in building God's kingdom on earth. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Part of our vocation. We see an image of what that will look like when he returns. Uh, first in Isaiah 65, and I will read it out of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So, when we look at the co-creative work that we are called to do with God and with the church, really it should be all the work that we do. Everything that we do uh, with our lives, both individually and corporately, all of it should be for the glory of God. Whether we are a homemaker, a business person, uh, IT tech, pastor, retiree, literally anything that we do with our, anything that we do with our lives. As Paul says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you're serving. Colossians 3. So the question, we'll do it. I've been talking for a while now, so we'll do another little break. But uh, the question uh, we need to ask is, what parts of our work are furthering God's kingdom? And if you feel really bold, ask your, maybe uh, uh, talk to the people in your, in your little group or on the chat, what parts of your work are not furthering God's kingdom? So we'll talk about that for two or three minutes. Um, everybody can chat online in the chat box. And uh, yeah, we'll get back together after that. Oh, and pausing. Forget every time. <laughs> so one of the comments that, uh, that Kevin brought up is that uh, retirement is the perfect time to uh, share the gospel with people because you can't get fired 
So, this idea that uh, it's difficult uh, to, in, in some cases, to, uh, to live out the gospel, or at least to, to preach the gospel in work, because you could get fired if you're a retiree. What are they going to do? Close the door on you? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, do, do it on the last day before you retire. At your retirement party. <laughs> any, any other thoughts? You were saying that one of the challenges is because sometimes we, we have jobs that just seem kind of mundane or routine. And, but to be able to look at our work with a theological lens and see where our work has that intersection with God's kingdom purposes. Now, like, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're making, as this one person, I'm making strip joints, you know, those are you know, <laughs> bad work. But there are areas within our work, and, and it takes eyes to see, but there's a lot of intersecting points between the work we do and God's good creation. Yeah. God's creative work. So David is saying that there's a lot of interactions between the work we do and, and, and God's creation, and we need to have the eyes to see where those, those intersect in our work. So we've talked about uh, the disintegration of, of work and vocation. We're in the New Covenant, so now we need to talk about some ways that we can reintegrate Uh, our work and calling, and it requires us uh, to adopt certain mindsets. The first one is that we need to remember that Monday is as important to our walk uh, with Jesus as Sunday is. And when I say Monday, I'm I'm including retirees in here because the work that retirees do, that's as important um, to their walk as, as the time on Sunday. The worship of Jesus on Sunday in Christian community, um, in part, is directed towards our worship of Jesus in whatever work we do. And I like this. Um, I don't remember who I took this from. It was either uh, Smith or uh, R. Paul Stevens. But uh, the Sunday worship service of the church gathered prepares us for the Monday ministry of the church scattered, scattered into the places where we work. And in the context of the local church, in the context of, of the, the services on Sunday, in the context of the community that we have, our, our life groups, our, our friends, uh, the family that we have uh, who are Christian, um, they become critical because they're a, an important support for helping us uh, navigate uh, the difficulties of work. And they're important in part because they're one of the ways that the Holy Spirit teaches us. The Holy Spirit teaches us through the community that we have. And it's critical because if we're not being taught by the Christian community that we have, we're going to be taught by the work community that we have. We're going to be taught by somebody. We're either going to be taught by, uh, by God, uh, in part through the church, through, through prayer, through, through the scriptures, or we're going to be taught by society. And one of the major areas that we spend our time in in society is in the work that we do. 
we need to uh, combine both the Mary and the Martha lifestyles. Stevens talks about this, that uh, the historical separation of the contemplative life, oh, all the lights just went out outside, um, the separation of the contemplative life uh, versus the active life uh, is problematic. It um, mimics the, uh, what we were talking about, about this platonic split between spiritual and material. And you look in medieval uh, theology, and they used the story of Mary and Martha uh, to justify uh, placing spirit, uh, spiritual work above material work. Because as the story goes, Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet and learning. And Martha is doing uh, uh, the work of hospitality around the house. She gets angry and she comes to Jesus and she says, please tell my sister to come help me do this work. And Jesus chastises Martha and says, Mary has chosen the better. And I read uh, a couple uh, of um, interpretations of, of this scripture. One of them is that uh, Jesus was chastising Martha be, not because Martha's work was lower than Mary's, but because Martha had a different skill set. She had a different calling than Mary. And Martha was trying to make Mary into herself. Mary's role was to, uh, to sit and learn and be a disciple, and Martha's role was to be uh, hospitable, to support uh, Jesus and his disciples in their work. They were equally important, but different. And Martha was chastised for trying to make Mary into herself. Another interpretation was that Martha was impatient. That what she should have been doing was sitting at Jesus' feet, learning with Mary. And then when Jesus was done teaching, they both would have gone up and done the work of hospitality that was needed. Either way, uh, Paul Stevens talks about how we need to be contemplative again sorry <clears throat> we need to be contemplative while we work that there is a time and the place for the practice of solo contemplative disciplines there's a time and the place to practice silence uh, solitude study among other solo disciplines but these disciplines are to strengthen us and bolster us so that when we re-enter uh, the arenas of our work that we are strengthened in our relationship with Jesus. We're to remember the priesthood of all believers. 1 Peter 2, 9. The fact that there is professional clergy who spend their work life uh, teaching, preaching, and leading God's church does not for a second remove the rest of our responsibilities as children of God. The Great Commission, which I will read. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a global command. It's to all of us. It's to every Christian everywhere for all time until the Lord returns. 
one of the uh, books that I was reading uh, makes a point is like, it's not the great suggestion. You can't assume that the responsibilities of the Great Commission should be placed solely on your pastoral staff and leave you nothing to do. That's not the way this works. We, all of us together, are called to make disciples of all nations. And there is an element of the growth and expansion of the church universal that God makes dependent on us. In part, how we live out our lives, how we work, um, is how people come uh, to Jesus. And there was a couple examples online of people who came to Christ through the people at their work. And I like the, uh, on our church's website, the, uh, in, in the mission statements, um, under the mission heading, together on mission, everyone, everywhere, all the time. We need to uh, reconnect the workplace uh, as an area where uh, Christian virtues are developed. And this happens uh, closely in concert with, with our community because as we're being um, um, taught, as we're being mentored, as we're being uh, encouraged in our Christ-likeness in our community, we can then take that and put that into practice uh, in our workplaces. And if we don't, if we split the uh, development of Christian virtue on Sunday with the way we work on Monday, what we end up doing is instead of developing the virtues, instead we're developing vices. We see uh, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and a couple verses before, we see the fruit of the flesh. We're either, sorry, yes, the fruit of the flesh. We're either developing uh, virtue or we're developing vice. There, there isn't a middle ground where we do nothing. And finally, uh, we need to reintegrate Sabbath into our lives. This idea of rest, it was intended as a day completely under the providence of God. You didn't work and you trusted in God. And it reminds us that we live for God, not for our work. And unlike what uh, our society might tell us, that our identity is not to be found in the work we do. We work for him. We don't work for work. Sabbath is a departing point of work. We start with Sabbath and then we work. We don't work towards Sabbath. That's more of our understanding of retirement or society's understanding of retirement that it's this Sabbath that will happen in the future and the rest of my work is just marking time until I get there. And finally, Sabbath is a, a commandment that, when obeyed, gives integrity to our work. Smith talks a lot about, about transitions um, being an important part of vocational life, understanding that all of us, um, in whatever we're doing, whether we're uh, at school, whether in the workplace, whether we're uh, retired, we are always in motion. And the image given is, uh, he used an elevator, but I like the, uh, the moving sidewalk. Um, some of you will see the uh, picture of YVR there. But um, the idea that you're continually moving towards uh, um, Jesus, if you're walking against this moving sidewalk, but if you stay still, you're not just, it's not neutral, 
you're moving away. So whether you're actively walking away from Jesus or you're passively just standing there, you are not being um, increased in your Christ-likeness. You are moving away from Jesus. And so there is an idea that we are always moving. We're always active. We're always working. And that our work is either shaping us to be more like Jesus or less like him. And so through these transitions that we experience in our life, both kind of these universal transitions, the idea that we're always moving, but also in these specific transitional moments that we need to invite God uh, into all of what we do. And Gord Smith talks about the importance of uh, our fully integrated calling, uh, not only uh, including this idea of constant transition. And so I gave uh, on the um, notes uh, a few transitional uh, time, uh, time frames. So school, post-secondary life, work and retirement, there's work, unemployment, then the next work, and that may be a pattern that continues. And then there's situations where work may become, or the work that you did may become impossible, and finding uh, work after that. Regardless of whether, where we are on any of these uh, time frames, um, regardless of what phase or transitional period we find ourselves in, we need to remember that our fundamental uh, three-part calling of communion with God, community with his people, and work with God and the church, it doesn't change. Hence, we need to be focused on the present work that we're doing and the next step. We shouldn't be thinking, what am I going to be doing for the rest of my life? What am I going to be doing for the rest of my retirement? You know, 20, 30 years, that's a long time. I need to figure out how I'm, what I'm going to do for this period of time. We need to be focused on the next step. And so Gord Smith, as we kind of wrap up in this, uh, Gord Smith gives a number of ideas about how to manage transition times in our lives. First of all, we need to make sure that we're immersed in prayer and scripture and in Christian community and that we're being shaped more and more towards Christ-likeness. We need to ask ourselves, what are we passionate about and what do we enjoy? Denisa mentioned this on, online because in part, this is how we know ourselves. We need uh, to know ourselves. And I kind of wish somebody had asked me, uh, Mike, what are you passionate about? What, what do you enjoy? Because uh, it took me nine years to do a four-year undergrad one of the reasons it took me so long is because I kept on changing majors because I kept on thinking, what can I do that's going to make me a lot of money? And I would try business for a bit and I'd hate it. And I'd try engineering for a bit and I'd hate it. And eventually I took uh, uh, almost a year off of school. And I was getting to the point where uh, I was living in my parents' basement. I was living off their money. And they were getting a little antsy. Mike, you have to have some kind of goal in life. And I was taught... I wish I remembered who I was talking to about this, but uh, the person basically told me, so if money had nothing to do with it, what would you want to do? And the first thing that came to mind, well, I want to be in humanities and, and philosophy. That, that just sounds awesome. And they said, well, that, that should be what you do. And it was like a light turned on in my, in my brain. It's like the Holy Spirit spoke to me through that person. And yeah. I wish somebody had said, it's okay to ask, uh, what are you passionate about? 
and what do you enjoy because God can and often does work through that. We need to ask ourselves, to steal a line from David, uh, what makes us pound the table? Where are there problems in the world uh, that we see that we want to be a part of God fixing? And this ties into what we're passionate about as well. We need to seek out the wisdom and advice that our Christian community has. Many times, more times than I can count, um, people in my life group, uh, people um, in, my, in my Christian friend group, my family, uh, Rosalind, so many times the Holy Spirit has spoken to me through these people because I am just blind when it comes to a lot of my faults. I'm blind to um, a lot of my weaknesses. And so when they point these out or when they point out areas of strength that I'm blind to, it, uh, it helps me see where God might be uh, calling me to work with him. We need to look for expertise that we can draw on. And this, when I, when I talk about this, I'm kind of talking about uh, the larger church setting. We have a very large church uh, for the area. And so a church our size will usually have somebody who has gone through whatever transition we're already going through. And so there's this wealth of expertise that is available now. Talking about mentoring, basically. Mentoring requires two people. It requires somebody to be humble enough to go and ask for mentoring. And it requires somebody who's willing to give their time and their energy to be a mentor. Gord Smith makes a side comment that this is an excellent area for uh, retirees to get involved in. And finally, um, it's always good for us to look when we're going through transitional periods, it's good for us to look for professional help. Uh, there are career, uh, retirement, and transitional counselors, and they can help us in making decisions and finding future opportunities where we can work uh, with God and with his people. And to wrap up, on the last page, there is a painting. And I wish I could have found a higher resolution uh, version of this painting, but unfortunately this was the best that I could do. It's a triptych by an uh, artist uh, named Paul Ro Leo Paul Robert, and uh, he painted in the late 19th, early 20th century. And it's called The Return of Christ. And I, honestly, it's hard to see, and I apologize for that, but um, there's an angel who's uh, coming down from heaven to take the, the offering of, of this Christian, and it's almost impossible to see, but it's, it's a sickle. And so the idea is that all these Christians are bringing the fruit of their labor to give as a sacrifice to the one who sits enthroned above. And so there's a farmer there. There's a guy with a lute, so a musician. There's a woman who has a uh, vase of flowers on her head, so I'm not sure if she's a florist or a gardener. There's uh, a man holding a miniature uh, building, so an architect. And there's a mother with her three children, maybe, maybe four children. And all of them are bringing their work as an offering to God. 
And so I just, I love that as an image of what our work is to be. That it doesn't matter what we do for God, that it's an offering to him. I'm going to close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are an active God. And we thank you that you call us to be active along with you. That you've given us work to do. Help us not to eat the bread of idleness, God. Help us not to buy into society's views of work, either as identity or something to be avoided. We ask, God, that uh, if we are in a time of toil, we ask for your strength uh, to get through that. If we're in a job that is more toil than it is regenerative, we ask that you would help us through that. If we're in a time of retirement and we're looking for uh, areas we can join you, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to see areas uh, where we can do work that builds your kingdom, Lord. Uh, For those of us uh, who are in, um, in the workforce, God, we ask that you would help us to be your representatives uh, to the people we encounter day in and day out. And for those of us who are doing uh, work that may not have any remuneration, God, uh, if we're raising children, if we're doing volunteer work, we ask that you would strengthen us in this and encourage us in this, um, even when our society may not. We pray all all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So let's let's thank Mike for, uh, for today. Thanks, Mike. Um, two questions. One, uh, so I'm going to ask two questions. You didn't know that. Did you? I didn't. I know. And they're both math questions. So, um, you've gone back to Regent College. Yes. To pick away at some courses. Yeah. How does this? Like, why is this factor into how you see your work and what God is calling you to do? Well, I think one of the areas that God has called me to work is, in part, in teaching, in teaching classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the primary reason I'm going back to Regent is to be better at that. Mm-hmm. It's to be better at the work that I do, I think, to gain skills that, that hone my edge, mm-hmm. but uh, ultimately for his glory. Uh, that's very cool. Now, okay, this is, that, was an, <laughs> that was an easy one. Here's the harder question. So... How do you know if you're in a bad job? And how do you know when it's time to leave a bad job? It's like, so what makes a job, what makes work bad, like bad work? I would say that when we go back to the initial definition of toil, um, work that is oppressive to your body, uh, your mind, and or your spirit, uh, work that um, it's not regenerative, and, and it may be necessary. It may be work that needs to get done. I mean, you need to pay the bills. You need to be, put food mm-hmm. on the table. But the, I think there absolutely is a work that is toil, mm-hmm. or, or at least actions that are toil. And I think ideally, we should, we should look for work that is not toil. Now, that may be work outside of work, that may, it may be areas that we volunteer with in the church. Um, that may be uh, the work of raising our children. Maybe that is the area where it's regenerative, where it's, um, where it's life-giving as opposed to life-taking. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, we will need God's 
we will need God's aid through the Holy Spirit to be able to do toil and right. not be overwhelmed by it. Good. It's only through God's, God's power that we can do that. Okay. I mean, a lot of that is subjective, right? So mm -hmm. in terms of how, is this toil and what's it doing to yeah. me and those sorts of things. What about the actual work? Let's say you're working for a company. Are there any like companies or, or like, and how would you discern whether <laughs> the work you're doing for this company is actually not participating in God's great redemptive purposes, but it's actually quite, like I'm thinking if you have a job um, working for a Colombian drug lord or something like that, right? Be the best drug lord be you can be. Drug lord, live out my calling. It pays well. <laughs> retirement. Able to, able to support my church yeah, really well. That's right. There's no retirement. <laughs> I mean, no, but seriously, I remember asking, I asked Paul Stevens this question uh, when we had, because Paul came here a long time ago. I said, Paul, what would be bad work? Um, to the point, it's just like, I'm not so sure whether or not staying at this company is, is a good thing. And I know our friend Roz, Roz, you and I uh, had this conversation. We talked about some of these things. What do you think about that? I think in part, should I pause this or stop the, or should we? Okay. Yeah. You know what? This is going to be off the record. So now we can talk freely. Okay. So sorry for all those people who have been listening at home and want to hear this great answer. We're just going to pause it here. You can send us an email if you have a question. Okay, here we go. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.